The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the near future called and wants people to write a bunch of stories set in it so it can think about how it wants to arrange the furniture before us downtime revelers and marauders arrive and muck up everything. The Ringo Palooza continues in ebooks, plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have the third entry and the conclusion in our multi-part interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow this time. David and Jacob discussed their big new time travel space fighting novel, The Valkyrie Protocol. They talk about the characters, all taken from various timelines and universes, the amazing setting of twisted universes, past and future, and the excellent story which involves the Black Plague and an even scarier black hole in time itself. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Don't forget the October post-apocalypse ebook sale until the stroke of midnight on Halloween. Save big on John Ringo ebooks. Save $2 per ebook in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising original series. Plus all John Ringo, everything we have is $1 off. The sale goes and goes through Halloween. Hey, the 2021 Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award is now open for submissions. Since its early days, science fiction has played a unique role in human civilization. Its fearless heroes, spectacular technologies, and wondrous futures have inspired many people to make science, technology, and spaceflight a real part of their lives. And in doing so, have often transformed these fictions into reality. The National Space Society and Bain Books applaud the role that science fiction plays in advancing real science and have teamed up to sponsor the short story contest in memory of Jim Bain called the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Awards. Here's what we want to see. Moon bases, Mars colonies, orbital habitats, space elevators, asteroid mining, artificial intelligence, Nanotechnology, realistic spacecraft, heroic sacrifice adventure. I think you know what we're talking about here. What we don't want to see is stories that show technology or space travel as evil or bad in itself, although there can be problems in the stories. We don't want to see a bunch of galactic far future empires. That's another kind of story, paranormal UFO stuff, zombies. Um, we have awards for those. But this one is about a positive spin on near future space. All the rules and details for making a submission are on the Bain.com website right there in the contest and awards menu pull down. The contest is open through February 1st, 2021. So you got time. 
The 10 finalists will be announced in March. I'll be one of the judges. And we usually get a cool celebrity author judge like David Drake or David Weber. The grand prize will be published as the featured story at Bain.com on the main page website right there. And you'll get paid at the normal paying rates that professional stories get. The author will also receive an engraved, uh, this really cool award that, that uh, we give out. And you get free entry into the 2021 International Space Development Conference and a year's membership in the National Space Society. Very cool. There are second and third place winners who also get free entry into the 2021 International Space Development Conference, the ISDC, um, which is always fun. I've been to several of them and they are really cool and lots of Bane swag as well. So if you have a great story about humanity's near future in space, just waiting to get told, write it up and send that story in. This is part three and the conclusion of a multi-part interview with David Weber and Jacob Hollow talking about the Valkyrie Protocol. Well, welcome David Weber and Jacob Hollow to the podcast. Hello, folks, guys. Hi. Hello. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you back in Technicolor this time. Um, David Weber is the creator of the Honor Harrington series, the Oath of Sword series, and well, about a billion other series, including one called the Gordian Division. There are more than 8 million copies of his books in print, and 33 titles so far have made the New York Times bestseller list, um, according to uh, Marla Ainspan here, our tabulator. And she should know. Yeah. She should know. Um, who is the associate publisher at Bain, by the way. He's collaborated with many excellent authors, uh, including Starfire on the Starfire series with Steve White, the Empire Man series with John Ringo, the Multiverse series more recently with um, Joel Presby, Linda Evans before, the Ring of Fire series with Eric Flint, um, among others. And uh, that's just to touch on some of the things that David has done. And now the Gordian Division series with Jacob Hollow. Jacob Hollow graduated from Youngstown State University with a degree in electrical and controls engineering. Go he is the author of eight books, including two Gordian Division novels written with David Weber. Between novels, Jacob enjoys gaming of all sorts, whether video gaming, card gaming, miniature war gaming, or, or watching speedruns on YouTube. He is a former Ohioan, which is a very difficult thing to say, by the way. I practiced <laughs> a former Ohioan. Well, you realize I was born in Cleveland. <laughs> you are a former Clevelander. I am a former Ohioan Clevelander. Very former in my case. <laughs> former Michigander who now lives in South Carolina with his wife boss and his cat boss. Um, and out now at Booksellers Everywhere is the Valkyrie Protocol, which really looks cool when I hold it up because it's green. <laughs> it's very ghostly well, yeah when you look at it yes yeah there you go so Ooh. i think that one of the reasons why i uh once swore that i would never ever write a time travel novel until david weber proposed that we write a time travel novel together try was, it you like it <laughs> what was um kind of my issues uh, with um, a lot of time travel rule sets. Um, now, now, there are 
some out there that I do like. Um, but one of the things that, um, uh, an issue that I have with a lot of them is you have all these time travel manipulations, but what is enforcing uh, a sequence upon them? What says that one time travel intervention happens after another time travel intervention? Why can't so, you continuously leap leapfrog to get in front of things? And by establishing a um, absolute clock, um, we have, you know, an, an, an absolute sequence of events that, and we know as authors and we can communicate to the readers, this intervention happens before this, before this, and before this. You can't go back and kill somebody to keep him from doing something he's already done. Okay. Now you could theoretically go back and kill him to keep him from doing what he's done, but that would only happen in somebody else's past, not yours. Okay. And that's why one of, one of our reviewers on the Guardian Protocol really liked it. And he said, but they never explain why Shigeki can't just go back and kill Raybert. Well, it's because killing Raybert won't do Shigeki any good, you know, if he doesn't stop him before Raybert figures out how to fix the problem and Shigeki's universe goes out like a soap bubble. Okay. Um, and I think the reviewer missed that. Uh, which I thought we had made about as clear as we could without, you know, printing that particular section of the book in red uh, or, or, or something. Um, part of the problem for any novel, but I think especially for science fiction, um, is that, as I've said many times, it's a collaboration between the writer and the reader because the reader is filling in huge amounts of information that the writer has not communicated specifically to them. That's one of the strengths of science fiction. One of the weaknesses of science fiction is that if somebody has decided that you're doing this a certain way, you're using a particular trope or whatever, that's how they read it, whether that's what you did or not. And then they judge the success or failure of the book on the basis of what they think you were trying to do rather than what you were actually trying to do. And it's not your fault and it's not really their fault. It's just a case of, okay, they got off on to the wrong interpretation. Of, but that's of a, what you're that's saying. a problem with all genre things. I th yeah, it is, but bring expectations that other writers have created within them. Well, I to, think, that, I think that's true, but I think it's more true for science fiction because we are not working with a historical reality where, you know, this isn't something where somebody can say, well, what happened in 1945, you know, or, or 19 or, or 20, 2020, you know, what's the technology is where, cause that's already all filled in. Okay. You know what it is, what it was, what it could be. Okay. With science fiction, we're inviting you into a world that hasn't happened yet. And therefore there is a lot more room for you to misunderstand how it's happening. Mm -hmm. because you don't have that concrete yardstick uh, that you, you can look at. And there's, and that, there's problems with what's metaphorical and what's actually like, yeah. you know, happening. So. Well, I've, I've used that uh, deliberately in the past. For example, in the Honor Harrington books, uh, the, the tendency of people to fill in the blanks. Okay. I convinced, I'm sure 99% of my reading readers that the people's Republic of Haven was France 
by naming somebody Robert Rob, Rob, Rob S. Pierre and giving them the tennis court oath and the whole nine yards. And the whole time I was doing that, I was doing it deliberately to keep them from realizing that particular uh, original form of government was built on a totally different model that I was going to restore at the end. I kept everybody expecting Napoleon to ride in on his white horse and become emperor. And instead, what I was bringing up on the other side here was the reformer who was going to restore the previous government. And one way I kept people from realizing who the reformer was, was by keeping them from looking for one at all. They were looking for Napoleon. So, so you, could, you were uh, playing four-dimensional meta <laughs> genre chess with the I, reader. I don't understand why people... For their own speaking. amusement. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's... Um, the art of storytelling is in communicating your vision strongly enough that the vision of your audience works. Um, movies, uh, playwrights, you know, they're dealing with a whole different spectrum of the information that they can present. It's the difference between, between radio and television. Okay. Uh, except that in uh, non-audiobook literary fiction, you have to even provide the voice for each character. Okay, that's how completely the 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 reader has to be involved in the process. Um, and I think that successful storytelling requires you to be aware that that's how it works. Um, that's why I think that the pacing of sentences is so important. Why I think punctuation is so important. Verb choice is so important because that's how you shape what your reader is perceiving, how they you, you communicate yeah. the energy in the scene, the whole nine yards. You're uh, allowing them to create the stage in their mind and the action and the characters. You have to, um, because they have to put the show on for themselves. Yeah. And, it, and it's something that you can only learn really by doing. I think some people have a greater natural gift for it than others, but it's like, like Tony Weisskopf is fond of saying, you know, and she and I agreed on this. It's, it's like a physical skill. You learn it by doing it. And one of the reasons I'm doing as many collaborations as I'm doing now is, you know, I tell people, they say, how did you learn to write? And I said, you know, how did you learn to walk? Because I'm not going all Zen on them. What I'm saying is it's a similar process. You fall down a lot when you're learning to walk. And each time you do, you learn a little bit about keeping your balance. You get back up and you can walk a little better next time. It's the same way with writing. You know, you, you write and some of it works and some of it doesn't. You learn from the mistakes and, and you keep going. Well, I've been doing that for a long, long time now. Yeah. And You've moved into a mentoring phase that you've talked about before with us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, I, and, you know, uh, Jacob, let me put it to you this way. I firmly believe that Jacob is going to do very, very well as an independent, traditionally published writer. Okay. Um, the, the talent is there. Absolutely. Um, and so if I can help him, number one, learn some of the stuff that I've learned by falling down and then getting back up without him having to bruise himself. Okay. Um, and by the same token, if I can help him get exposure 
to a readership who will appreciate the quality of the stuff that he does, then that's absolutely something that I should be doing. I can't, I, I, I'm not claiming any great virtue in this, but it is literally something that I can't not do. Okay. Um, I think I owe some of that to Roger Zelazny um, because he was kind of my example of, of uh, the, the guy at the top of his craft when, when I came, came along. Um, some of it I'm sure I owe to my, uh, my parents, my upbringing. Um, but it's, much as I like Jacob, it's not because I like Jacob that I feel this way. Uh, it's because I am looking at all of the decades of stories that he can create, that I'm confident he will create. Yeah. Well, you're doing it for the readers. That's I, in a way, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like I've, I've told people, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm worried about my literary legacy, but if it's a choice between my literary legacy and sharing getting the kids through college or something like that, God, yes, bring somebody else in to write the books, all right? Um, however, my belief is that the only times in which a series has been successfully taken over by another writer, with a very, very few exceptions, Kevin Anderson is probably the, the primary example of that, it's been by someone who was already involved in the series or was already working with the original author of the series, that that's how the transition happened. Okay. And it's not that the new guy is writing exactly what the old guy would have written, but it's that there's a continuity. There's, there's, there's a voice that, that, that transmits and there is a respect for the characters that was learned by the new writer in working with and conversation with the original author, if you see what I'm saying. Um, and so in some respects, if I can find somebody who I would be comfortable with and uh, you, Bain would be comfortable with and Sharon would be comfortable with to continue the Honorverse or one of the other series, if something happens to me or whatever, then that's obviously a worthwhile side benefit. Okay. Um, and I think probably Jacob could do that. I think that his comfort zone for his writing voice is different enough from mine. Uh, what you're finding in the Valkyrie Protocol and, and the Guardian Protocol is a fusion of our voices. I think his individual voice is, is significantly different from my individual voice. I'm not saying good, bad. I'm just saying different. Okay. So I'm thinking that, for example, if he were to be writing honorverse novels down the road, that he'd have to take kind of the approach that Phil Pornell and I are taking uh, toward the Tran novels, which is we're not going to try to write Jerry-style books. Mm -hmm. And we're going to deal with, we're going to create an, uh, new characters that we're going to bring in while leaving the established characters very much the way that they are. Um, and I would think that I would think that government coming at it that way, okay, Jacob could very easily uh, write uh, honorverse novels 
Uh, well, you're not done yet, David. Oh no, no. I, I turned sixty. <laughs> I turned sixty-eight this month. Okay, so I should be good for quite a while yet. All right. Certainly I, hope so. <laughs> well, I, I will say, I will say that that fall in Atlanta um, changed my perspective uh, quite a bit um, because of the fact that it just pretty much totally shut me down mm-hmm. uh, for a year and a half, two years. I mean, I couldn't write at all. Um, and, uh, then I started, um, and I was writing, I could work, one of the reasons I'm doing as many collaborations as I am is that doing collaborations helped pull me through the writing process because I was working with someone else and there was, you know, that, that synergy was involved there, but it's only, um, well, let's put it this way. I had a scene in, um, uh, a call to insurrection the novel that Tim Zahn and Tom and I are working. I had a scene that took me five weeks to write. And it was originally going to be like a 5,000 word scene. It wound up being about 16,000. Okay. But it took me five weeks to write that. And on the day when I'm doing a really long time in David Weber world. Oh, well, (laughs) you know, my, my output traditionally when I'm, when I'm in the swing on a book is between five and 7,000 words a day. Okay, and it was it took me five weeks. Part of it was I kept finding reasons why the original scene wouldn't work. And after a while, it kind of took on a life of its own as something that. I guess avoidance was was kicking into it, too. But I David, finally got you, were, you were having some physical. I mean, you you had heart issues and other things. And I've physically seen you. You are a healthier person today <laughs> than you were a couple of three, four or five years ago. Well, that that's probably true, except unless we're talking mentally, you know, Um, but what I, what I was, what I was going to say is I finally got that done and off. Mm -hmm. And yesterday in about eight hours, uh, I wrote a 7,800 word short story uh, for the uh, less darkness fall uh, anthology that will be coming out uh, in about a year. And it was good. Okay. And so it's kind of like, you know, okay, I'm out of jail on the scene that was hanging over me. Uh, but I think it's also uh, a sign that I am short stories are discrete bites. Novels aren't. So I'm still not sure where I'm going to be when I get, you know, fully into the swing into working on a solo novel again. But I think the, the, the general, the general indications are good, and Jacob here uh, is part of the reason that I'm getting back online. Um, especially Jacob, when I need, when I had to go in to do the historical components of the Valkyrie Protocol, and I was doing my research, and I was really, you know, getting into the. It was so good for me. Uh, and yet, um, on a solo project, I probably would have been still sitting there going, hmm, where do I want to go with this? You, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the structure of the collaboration uh, sure. was, was a big help to me. Well, that, uh, that is, that does, uh, that's the rich part of the book for, for me, is that all that stuff that happens in Constantinople and, and in, uh, in Byzantine, it's really cool stuff um well i hadn't realized until uh, uh, i started doing the research that we had ephraim to work with uh now i took some 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 liberty patriarch ephraim yeah. who is yes. a, a 
uh, Greek Orthodox, I guess, in yeah. the Byzantine sense. Yes, yes. But it, 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 absolutely fascinating historical character, a guy who was a general, who was a count, who was a patriarch, you know, the whole nine yards, and who becomes Theodora's savior, really, I think. Um, he's, he's somebody one, who is able to understand that she's not a demon, <laughs> Well, that's part of it, but he's also able to explain to her why she's doing what she's doing in a way that she's never, you know, it's not that she has doubts about what she's doing, okay? But most of us don't fully understand why we are doing things that are hugely important to us. There's so much packed up in who we are. Yes, And, and he's like, he's telling her, in effect, okay, look, I don't care what you may have done in the past when you didn't know these people were real or anything else. I'm dealing with who you are. And who you are is a good person. Okay? Yeah. Samuel had had told Theodore that. Yeah, but Samuel Pepys doesn't have the moral authority... (laughs) <laughs> that's true that's Ephraim. true well it depends on how you define moral <laughs> yes one of the reasons you want to talk I, about um you know what one of the reasons that the i best wanted soft to porn sites and yeah throughout one of the reasons time. i wanted to use peeps was the stuff that he tucked away in his journal and mm. jacob actually has a scene here where one of the characters in the admin female character is they're, they're talking about some guy named peeps and she says oh yes samuel peeps and they're like you know who they're talking about? I says, oh, yes, I read, I read his journals. You know, I said, why? Because I learned all kinds of words for femi- female anatomy that I hadn't known before. <laughs> That's Samuel Pepys. Okay. Yeah, quite a character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really, well, Ephraim really... seems to be, to me, he's, he's a really good priest character, a spiritual character. Yeah. Um, that, that really embodies the best of Christianity. Um, yeah, well, I try... Christianity is is important to me on on a personal level. I'm a historian, so I also know that there have been way too many times when so-called Christians didn't live up to the the requirements of their faith, okay? Uh, Or when they made accommodations with their faith in the name of secular power or whatever, Paris is worth a mass. You know, there's all kinds of examples of it. So I think that it's incumbent upon me as a writer, us as storytellers, to play fair with religion, to, to play fair with the people who are true to their beliefs and represent, embody the best of their beliefs, but also to make room for the characters who aren't. Uh, you can see it very clearly in my books by that other publisher, uh, Safehold. That's where I grapple with it most explicitly. But Ephraim, He's an example of that, of that same thought. We don't, Jacob, do we really have a bad patriarch except for, what's his name, the one that uh, Justinian sends out? And he's not so much bad. He's just more like, I know which side of the bread my butter is on and the emperor told me to go do this. But do we actually have, uh, there, there, are, there are references in there to the fact that this is a period when orthodoxy was hugely important and, you know, monks would beat each other up in the street over differences of, of theological 
distinction. Uh, Eric did that very well in uh, the Belisarius books. Um, and we don't deal with it as much here, but there's a little bit of an undertone of that. Um, but I don't think we actually have a bad um, priest um, in, in, in this one. Um, of course, so many pages in the book, David. <laughs> well, and, and also, the, actually, the character set from the 6th century is not huge. Okay. Um, it feels bigger than it actually is if you sit down and, and look at it closely because of the stage that they're, that they're working on. For example, when Narciss turns up, Narciss is probably only in there for, what, 25, 30 pages? Uh, and he's very important in those 25 or 30 pages. But he's scarcely what you would call a central character of the 6th century storyline. Okay? He has a function to serve in telling the story more than anything else. Now, I will say that one thing that Jacob uh, and I both do, uh, it's almost a, a compulsion for me, is I don't have any characters who are named Lieutenant or the Sergeant or the Captain. Any character that I have, by God, he has a name or she has a name. And I usually jot down a little bit of a physical description of them. And most of them have some character quirk, characteristic that I'm tagging them to in my brain when I insert them into the book. And I think that's one reason why people talk about the number of characters that I have in my books. Okay. It's not that I have that many critically important characters. It's just that anybody that I have in there, in my mind, is a character in his or her own yeah, right. Your spear carriers come to life. Yeah. Well, that's, and they have literally done that uh, in, in books in the Honorverse. Okay. Characters who were introduced as, as minor characters uh, and then left alone for, for two books. Ten years later, they'll re-enter the lives of the protagonists. And ten years have passed for them, too. And they've grown and they've changed. And I think that that's a strength that Jacob and I share to, to a significant level. I mean, if you look at the characters, Jacob, that you created in the Gordian Protocol. Um, well, there's actually uh, one particular character in the Gordian Protocol, and she's barely <laughs> around. She isn't around for very long. And, she gets and, dead. But... Uh, <laughs> Hennenkamp. She, she she may be uh, showing up again. In, uh, well, she. Oh, you're you're talking about our security person. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, she gets very dead in, in the Gordian. <laughs> I mean, really, really thoroughly dead. Uh, but of course, since that entire universe went away, the original of her is still alive in admin. Um, we have several characters we could do that with, really. But no, I remember. Well, yeah, but I think you know. Um, I thought you were talking about Hinnenkamp, um, who is one of my favorite characters you came up with. Um, but no, I, I know exactly who you're talking about, and yes, I'm looking forward to her return too. Because <laughs> <laughs> she really wasn't, uh, you know, uh, a huge character. There's just, you know, maybe uh, a paragraph or two describing. Um, uh, Susan Cantrell's mindset before she meets okay. an untimely end in that yes, book. Yes. So do you have a, a title well, you like for the third book yet? Or? 
David, do we have a title yet? No, we do not have a title. We do not have a title. Okay. <laughs> Probably it won't wouldn't matter one. if I did, Tony would change it. You know. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I am waiting for my senior partner to tell me what the title is, as I have waited on the previous two books. Uh, <laughs> did, I, did I ever tell you how the short Victorious War got named? I found out that Tony's in-house name for it was Honor Gets Laid. And that inspired me to come up with a real title for really, really quick. Okay. She knows how to motivate her writers. Um, But uh, I think that one of the things that is, uh, it's an irony. I think the readers will appreciate is that Klaus Wilhelm is interacting almost routinely when he interacts with the admin delegation to Cisco with the admin version of the person who killed his wife and his daughters and he doesn't know it because the guy from the admin who he's interacting with had nothing to do with the death of his wife and daughters. But every time that he enters the same room that the delegation is in, he is in the presence in one sense of the man who killed his wife and daughters and who he then killed. Um, And that I think is one of the more, I won't say delicious, but one of the more um, intriguing ironies of the way that we finally wound up setting up how these universes work. Um, Because that universe that's gone Okay. Neither side of the two universes that are left really knows who did what and why in that one that's gone. Um, but the readers, and readers Jacob and know. I do. We know. <laughs> we are the shadow. We know what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Yeah. Well, this is one of the great, you know, this the fact that you have exploited this this wonderful um you know paradox of a great science fiction idea um and the, you can, this is the kind of story you can only tell you know this with a time travel setup um or a multiverse setup yeah. yeah i mean you can sort of metaphorically tell it in a in a mainstream sort of way but but to really get the visceral uh, feel of it, you, you got to write it as science fiction. That's one of yeah. the great things about science fiction. Well, one of the things that's really interesting to me about this series is the contrast between it and my Hell's Gate multiverse series. Because it's a totally different approach to how you're going to handle the divergent universes. Because everything is identical, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but there's no overlap of human beings. If you exist in one universe, you're not going to exist in the other universe. It's two totally separate groups in that sense. And this is kind of the other way around. Um, a lot of the places, most pla- all places have the same place names. But the people who live there are not the same folks. So it's, it's, uh, it's, for me, it's a, it's a good change of pace. Joel and I need to get uh, back to the, Back to Hell's Gate. Well, We've been talking speaking about of that. But. What you're working on now? I think you're working on an Otterverse book with Eric that you've almost. Yes, done. yes. I am waiting on on that from Eric. Uh, she, he, and I have talked about what uh, what the part of it that I need to write, but I can't really write it until I've seen how he structured the part that he's doing. 
Um, this is another uh, in the, the the Crown of Slaves sequence. Yeah, we don't know what we're going to call it yet. Neither of us likes any of the titles we've come up with yet. Uh, but Crown's not going to work uh, for this one. And also, it's a it's a direct fusion of the Crown storylines with the main storyline of the war against the Salarians and the fallout from it. So, and what is what's the little guy's name in that series? The Victor Kasha or Damian Harahap? Uh, there's two spies. One of them, Anton and Anton and Victor are his. Victor, yeah, Victor is the. Hi, I am a choir boy. Excuse me, you're in the way. Zap and and kind of keep going. Um, he's he's a very interesting character. Um, and well, I think uh, we should call it the Victor Gets Laid book. I mean, no, 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 because that's been going on for a while. I mean, you know, ever since I'll suggest that to Tony, and we can do not suggest that to Tony because then then I would have to, I would have to kill a character named Tony Daniels in a book. Oh, I see. But you would force my hand. I would have no. It wouldn't choice. be the first author that killed me in a book. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I got that's crucified true. last time. Hey, you know, it's any anything worth doing is worth doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, at least at least nobody's done to you what uh, John did to Buckley. <laughs> okay i mean my god you know it's all the ais are buckley's and they all go insane eventually so every one of them dies i'm like ooh, <laughs> i wish i'd thought of that <laughs> yeah. uh well so that will be coming uh probably next in honorverse land yeah i think tony told me that she's planning it for like october november uh in time for christmas uh, which would be about right if Eric gets it to me shortly. In addition, I have uh, the manuscript from Jacob, and I also have the manuscript for the next Star Kingdom novel from Jane. I haven't even looked at that yet. I need to, but I've been deliberately oh, staying away from cool. it because I had to focus on other stuff. The Stephanie Harrington books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, I've just finished the scene that has been hanging Tim up for forever on a call to insurrection and i think he has a window to work in so that probably would be forthcoming pretty soon what do we call that manicore ascendant the uh, manicore ascendant series that's uh travis long as our main yeah. character yeah. and richard fox and i have turned in uh the uh first volume of uh, uh right this minute i think we're calling it to- tony and i went back and forth over what we we're going to call the series and I think we wound up calling it like uh, Empire Ascendant or, or something like that. But it's essentially the story of... That's Governor, of, no? that's but, governor which is... Yeah, but that, yeah, it's, it's, it's whatever the heck we're going to call the series, colon, Governor, because that's the first volume in it. He's a governor at this point. He hasn't yet that's become a, a rebel or... That's slated for next summer. Yeah, and, and it that's is, a, it is related to Path of Fury of the Fury. Yeah, it's a prequel to Path of the Fury, like three, four hundred years before it, and it's this basically the Weber creation. Now. It's the creation of the um, the empire that Alicia DeVries serves in the in the Fury uh, novels. Novel, depending on how you want to how you want to look at it, uh, and in fact. Um, two-thirds of the action in this book takes place on the uh, in the uh, New Dublin system, which is the system that uh, Alicia's uh, maternal family comes from. 
Um, and when you get done reading this book, you will begin to understand exactly why uh, loyalty to the crown is a really big thing in her hometown. Um, but uh, I was, I'm pleased with the book. Um, and uh, I, th I think readers are going to like it. Not as much as some of them would like a sequel to Path of the Fury. The number of people who want to see more Fairhot Ben Belkasim or more Alicia and Megara, you know, I understand why they do. Okay. But this is the story that I need to be telling right now. Well, I that's going to be the next Weber from Bain, isn't it? Uh, uh, I think governor. so. Yeah. yeah, I think No, Well, the, well, okay. Valkyrie just dropped. So it's, it's out now. Yeah. Well, uh, Valkyrie is, is our, our yeah, big book right now. I know. I know. So, uh, so yeah, I think probably that is good. Now the next solo novel that I'm going to do, I, that I have to do is in the safe hold series. And the one after that, the next solo novel um, will be the sequel to uh, sword of the South. Um, Tony has told me that that's what she wants me to do next. And I need to do that. Uh, that is actually a series where I know what's going to happen in each book which is very unusual <laughs> for me. So once I get into it, I should be able to write it. Uh, so you've you got that redheaded guy now going. Yeah, yeah. Following. Houghton, yes. What is um, your barbarian's name again? Ba it's Basel. not a barbarian. Well, How, he's no. very sophisticated. Well, yes. Brandark is more sophisticated than, than the Bazel yeah. is. But yeah, it's, uh, Bazel is a lot more sophisticated. That's than cool. That's your big pretend. fantasy series. Yeah, uh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so, you know, I need to, I need to get, that, uh, get that moving. Although I will tell you yeah. that if I do my job right, when you read the last line of the last volume in that series, you'll realize I played you all the way through and that two or three of the main characters are not who you thought they were all the way through the book. And you'll have to go back and reread it because you thought it was written on two levels. And it was actually written on three. Nanny, nanny, boo. <laughs> well, as long as they don't turn out to be uh, characters from the French revolution. I no, 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 that's not going to happen. And, and nobody's going to wake up in a shower and say, none of that really happened. No, I, or, although for, or they're all Cylons. Yeah. Well, if, yes, that need not going to do that either. That would be bad. But if, if Bobby would just wake up in the shower and let us reset 2020, I'd be up for reruns of Dallas. I mean, that's how desperate I am. Right that would be now. nice. Well, what, uh, what else do we want to say about the Valkyrie Protocol? Um, I think we've, we've plumbed a lot of it that we can talk about. Um, it's a great, um, it, it's a, um, adventurous and yet has a lot of poignant moments in it um, that are brought about by the, very, um, by the very nature of the time travel story. Well, by the nature of the time travel story and by the nature of the human beings involved. I mean, Teodora has to make some really, really hard decisions. Uh, and, and in one way, she didn't have any decisions to make at all because the situation is, events are in motion that she can't stop. But she has to deal with it and decide what role she's going to take in the events ongoing. And I think her final... Uh, the, the fi her final line in the novel really sums it all up. Um, and I have to say that for me, in many respects, the most poignant moment, certainly that I had the main hand in crafting in the book, 
occurs in the final chapter when uh, Raybert is sitting there with a virtual book in his, in his lap, as it were, um, because of what that book is and what it represents. Um, I think that really speaks to where Jacob and I are both coming from in terms of why it matters what you do. Would you say that was fair? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, that's, I mean, that's probably a, a great way to, to end it. Um, there's so much more we could, you know, we could go on and on, but this is uh, Valkyrie Protocol out at booksellers everywhere. Um, the one you get will not have, be invisible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's not invisible. Uh, it's just translucent. That's right. You'll be able to see the print in yes. your copy um, by David Weber and Jacob Hollow. Uh, guys, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and talking about this this really great, great uh, novel. We had we had fun with it, That's and I and good. I, you remember I said that uh, I'd only do a collaboration if I thought it would be at least as strong as either of us would have done alone. Uh, I think this book is stronger than either of us would have done alone, and that's what the goal is, really. Ultimately, when when you do a collaboration, is to have it come out being better than you would have done by yourself. And I think we accomplished that with this one, Jacob. I think, I think we did. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League... For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization, but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Tarducci Tower, City of a Proto, Genovese System. So, Admiral, Commissioner Hirokichi Floyd said as his butler poured the after-dinner wine, set the bottle at his elbow, and withdrew. I assume you're eager to depart and get on with it? We're certainly ready anyway, Commissioner, Vice Admiral Hoidu Gyozo replied. He lifted his wine glass and sipped, then set it back down with a rather tight smile. Shifting targets at such a late date offered a bit of a challenge, since all our planning had focused on Exapia. But the truth is that there's not really much change in the parameters of the operation. He shrugged. More a matter of plugging in new names and addresses than confronting any new threats or logistics issues. We've completed all of our preparations and pre-op planning, and we'll translate out Thursday at 0730. After that, 
He shrugged again. After that, Admiral, Floyd's piercing green eyes flashed. Buccaneer will teach the friggin' mantis and their arse kissers that, as my uncle Chojiro used to say, when you fuck with the bull, you get the horns. Indeed. Admiral Hoidu produced another smile. It wasn't easy because what he wanted to do was roll his eyes. Unlike Floyd, who was a product of one of Old Terra's mega-herb towers, Hoidu had been born and raised on the planet Krishul Negru, on a 12,000-hectare cattle ranch. He rather doubted Uncle Chojiro had possessed any personal experience with irate cattle of either sexual persuasion, and having personally dealt with very irate, 2,000-kilo, genetically-enhanced Chianina bulls upon more than one occasion, He'd always loathed that particular cliche and the people who seemed so fond of it. Then again, there was a lot to loathe about Uncle Chojiro's nephew, too. The arrogant bastards have it coming, the commissioner continued. He drained his own wine glass in a single swallow and refilled it from the bottle without ever looking away from Hoidu. God only knows how many people they've already gotten killed. Indeed, Hoidu repeated. He found that noncommittal response useful in dealing with people who could be relied upon to interpret it as agreeing with whatever the hell it was they just said. I'm looking forward to your after action report, Admiral. Floyd showed his teeth. I don't think anybody in Manticore is going to enjoy reading it, though. Indeed, Hoidu said yet again and shook his head mentally as the repetition sailed right by Floyd. That was another thing the word was good for. The number of times in a row he could repeat it before it produced a reaction was a faithful barometer of his current audience's stupidity. And despite the misleading impression of mental acuity produced by the commissioner's piercing eyes, the admiral suspected he could set a new record with Floyd if he really put his mind to it. The commissioner only smiled broadly at him, but Hoidu reminded himself that just because Floyd was stupid didn't mean he couldn't be dangerous in the Byzantine infighting of the Solarian League's entrenched bureaucracy. Someone of his towering incompetency wouldn't hold a sector governorship, even of one as piss poor as the Genovese sector, unless he had the right gutter fighter instincts and patrons at a high level. He was not the sort with whom a prudent flag officer engaged in pissing contests, which was a pity given his record to date. I agree with him that the mantis need to be taken down a peg or three, Hoidu thought from behind his answering smile. I'm not happy about the change in targets for our op, and neither were some of my staff people. But I'm not going to shed many tears for it at the end of the day. Any of the mantis buddies who get run over along the way only have to look in the mirror to see who pasted the target on their backs. And looking after their interests is nowhere in my job description. I'm no more eager to trash star systems than the next man, but I'm a Solarian officer. My loyalties to the League and its vital interests, not theirs. And anything that makes the Manti supporters, any of their supporters, rethink their positions can't be all bad. And whatever I may think of Floyd, he's got a point about this op. Hoidu's nostrils flared just a bit. A minute change of expression his staff would have recognized as his equivalent of a shouted profanity at that thought. Neobarb neutrals are one thing, but someone who chooses to stab the League in the back when it's his responsibility to represent it deserves whatever the hell he gets, in spades. Still, even this cretin ought to realize it's not just the Mantis getting people killed. The Mantis may be the ones pulling the trigger, but fair's fair, Governor. 
it's idiots like you and certain other idiots in old Chicago who keep shoving our people in front of them before they do. In fairness, Floyd hadn't gotten anyone killed, yet. Not for lack of trying, though. And while no actual blood had been shed, there'd been plenty of other consequences, including the sudden end of one of Hoidu's personal friend's career. Liam Pyun had made Floyd look bad 5T months ago by showing the moral courage to disobey the governor's direct and suicidal orders in the Zunker system, and in the Solarian League, embarrassing a superior, especially one who deserved it, was the only truly unforgivable sin. I'm sure he wishes we were headed back to Zunker to beat the hell out of the mantis who helped humiliate him. But maybe even he's smart enough to realize the real basis for target selection has a hell of a lot more to do with hitting the mantis where they aren't than going toe-to-toe with them. Not yet, anyway. I suppose I shouldn't say this, Admiral, the commissioner continued like a man confiding in a lifetime friend. But there's a part of me that actually hopes they'll be stupid enough to refuse your demands. I'd just as soon not see anyone killed, but... He tapped an index finger heavily on the table for emphasis. It's about friggin' time people figured out there are consequences for supporting rogue regimes like Manticore. Indeed, Vice Admiral Hoidu replied. HMS Phantom, Task Group 110, Beowulf System. I just got off the comm with Admiral Truman, Rear Admiral Jan Katoch told the men and women around the briefing room table aboard HMS Phantom. A Nike-class battlecruiser, barely 17 months old, and built by Partabitsa Shipbuilding in its Hephaestus module, Phantom was 2.5 million tons of lethality, the fastest and most deadly broadside-armed warship in the galaxy. The Royal Manticoran Navy needed about 10 times as many of her as it actually had, and under other circumstances, it would have had most of them. Unfortunately, almost 80 of her sisters had died stillborn when the Yawada strike tore Hephaestus and Vulcan apart. Katoch was even better aware than most of how sorely those dead ships were missed, since he'd been slated to command an entire squadron of them. That squadron had died with Hephaestus, however, along with entirely too many of the men and women he'd already come to know. 85% of the squadron's 6,000 personnel had been aboard ship or elsewhere on Hephaestus, preparing to take over their new ships from the yard dogs. None of them had survived. A charmed ship, he thought, looking at the shrouded ghostly figure on Phantom's bulkhead-mounted crest. That's what they call her anyway, and who knows, they may even be right. In the absence of the squadron's other Nikes, the Admiralty was building him a replacement out of Saganami C's and Saganami B's, with emphasis on the latter. The Charlies were in almost as urgent demand as the Nikes themselves, and he'd been warned that he'd be lucky to see a single full-strength division of them. Unfortunately, it would be at least two more T-weeks before he even knew how many of them he'd be receiving. Although he'd been formally named as Commanding Officer Designate Task Group 110.2, which would ultimately become a vest pocket task force, and one cut for a generous-sized vest, all he had at the moment was Phantom and the Saganami B class cruisers Chinqueda, Shikumizui, and Talwar, supported by a single Roland class destroyer, HMS Arngrim. He'd been supposed to receive the Sealak Vukodlak last week, but she'd suffered a major impeller room engineering casualty two weeks before that, 
and the Beowulf guards would need at least another ten days to put her back in service. In fact, ten days would be something of a miracle, given that they'd been required to replace no less than four of her after beta nodes. So, at the moment, he was a task group commander with all of five ships under his command. The Admiral, he continued now, had just finished a conversation with Director of State Longacre, and Director of State Longacre had just finished a conversation with Special Representative Lambrou and Special Representative Tsakabiku, which is the reason Admiral Truman was talking to me and the reason that I'm talking to you. He smiled without very much humor. We have our movement orders, people, he said, and several of his officers stiffened in obvious surprise. Movement orders, sir? Captain Jim Clark repeated after the briefest of pauses, and Katoch smiled a bit more broadly. Movement orders, he confirmed. It would appear President Vangelis has changed his mind about an allied presence in his star system. Clark sat back in his chair, eyebrows raised, and Katoch shrugged. It's not really hard to understand why his administration didn't want us there to begin with, Jim, he pointed out. We've been careful to keep any fleet units out of Beowulf orbit during the debate over the referendum. The Hypatian government had even better reasons to avoid any appearance that their referendum vote was coerced by foreign warships. Agreed, sir, Clark nodded. I'm just wondering what's changed. According to Lambrou and Sakabiku, what's changed is that the most probable outcome of the referendums become abundantly clear. The rear admiral paused and looked around the briefing room until every head had nodded. Brad Lambrew and Sophronia Zakabiku were the designated Hypatian special representatives to Beowulf. Technically, they were simply observers of the Beowulfin plebiscite. Actually, they were Adam Vangelis's ambassadors to the star system with which he intended to seek formal political union as soon as his referendum validated his intent and Beowulf got its own slower-paced plebiscite out of the way. Apparently, Katoch continued, something new has been added to the mix in Hypatia. That calm conversation between McCartney and Abruzzi, sir? Lieutenant Albamonte, Katoch's electronic warfare officer, asked. News of the leaked soundbite and the first intimations of Hypatia's fiery reaction to it had reached Beowulf over a tea week ago. Sounds like it, Katoch shrugged. Never underestimate the pure fury that kind of talk can generate, Paul whether there's any serious intent behind it or not. I really doubt even McCartney or Abruzzi thought they could get away with any kind of decapitation of the Hypatian government. Mind you, they are Solis, and Mandarins for that matter, so anything's possible. But I'm pretty sure that even if that's even really their voices, they never had any intention of pursuing that nonsense as an actual policy. Nobody in Hypatia seems inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt, however, which, let's face it, isn't such a bad thing from our viewpoint. A very clarifying thing, moral outrage. If I had a dollar for every time emotions trumped reason, or for that matter, gotten behind reason and pushed like hell, I'd be Klaus Hauptmann. Several people chuckled and he grinned. Then his expression sobered. Whether it was the mention of intervention battalions or something else, Lambrou and Sakabiku told Director Longacre that it's no longer a question of whether or not the referendum's going to pass. It's not even a question of whether or not it'll be a landslide. The only real question in Van Gelis's mind now is how big a landslide it'll be. At any rate, he's confident enough of the outcome 
and I think that calm conversations made him nervous enough about how the mandarins are likely to respond when they hear the vote total that he's decided to go ahead and invite us now. The referendum scheduled for next Wednesday. If we leave within 48 hours, we'll hit Hypatia sometime Thursday. That'll keep us out of the system until after the vote's counted, or until enough of it's been counted to project the outcome with certainty at any rate, but also close up the window in which the Sollies can just waltz into Hypatia unopposed. Sir, I understand what you're saying. Commander Marketa Ilkova, TG 110.2's operations officer designate, was five centimeters shorter than her admiral. She was also attractive, with red hair and sharp, intelligent blue-green eyes. Indeed, Kotoch had discovered she was rather more attractive than he might have wished, given the restrictions of Article 119. She was also at least as competent as she was attractive, and obviously less than delighted by the news of their impending departure. But we're still all the task group you've got. And we're more than enough to beat the holy living hell out of any light solly squadron that comes our way, Katoch pointed out with just a bit more confidence than he actually felt. Then he sighed. Admiral Truman doesn't expect us to hold off a fleet the size of Filaretta's or Crandall's Marketa, but Director Longacre's made the point, and it's a valid one, people, that if Hypatia's willing to pin a big target on its chest by standing up beside the Alliance, the least we can do is provide President Vangelis' citizens with visible, tangible proof the Alliance will be just as determined to look after them as we are to look after our own star systems. Nobody in Hypatia is likely to mistake five ships, even queen ships, for a system defense fleet, but what they'll see are the lead elements of the task group that will be capable of defending them when it's fully assembled. And it won't hurt a bit for us to be there, getting a feel for the system astrography, and establishing a working relationship with Vangelis and his people while we wait for the rest of the task group to join us. Understood, sir, Ilkova said. Admiral Truman assures me she'll send forward at least four more bravos within the next seven or eight days, and Vukodlak should be out of the yard dog's hands a couple of days after that. As soon as she's finished testing her repairs, she'll be sent to join us, along with a freighter load or two of system defense pods. And by the time she gets to Hypatia, we'll have worked out the best way to use her and be ready to start deploying the pods. That was another entry in the complete serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And an audience with a wise and whimsical labradoodle who guards the gateway to that very dangerous ride, the Dimension Mixer, at the amusement park at the end of time, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for David Weber and Jacob Hollow, authors of the Valkyrie Protocol. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.